I'm Chris McDonough, a retired homicide detective. I've interviewed thousands of people, from serial killers to ministers. Welcome to the interview room. We're going to call this a TED Talk because we have with us today absolutely three amazing guests. Mr. Kevin Sullivan, he's an author, a writer of history and true crime, and he's the author of 16 books. You can find him on Amazon, and he's a former investigative journalist for both print and online media. He's a recognized authority on serial sex killer, Ted Bundy. Indeed, his breakout book, The Bundy Murders, a comprehensive history published by McFarlane in 2009, was the catalyst that brought him much attention in the true crime world, leading to appearances on numerous radio programs and, of course, documentaries both in the United States, United Kingdom, and worldwide. I have to tell you, Kevin is probably the world-renowned expert on everything that Ted Bundy did. He's been interviewed by law enforcement, by news, you name it, Kevin has been spoken to because he got that close to understanding Ted Bundy. And of course, Francine Bardol, Inventor of the Bardol Method, we love Francine, who I can't say enough about her. She, too, is world-renowned for her ability of forensics. And then we've got a special guest, a gentleman by the name of Larry Tucker. So let's welcome our wonderful, esteemed panel today. I tell you, it's great to have each and every one of you here. Guys and gals, Miss Francine, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. <laughs> Kevin, thank you so much for uh, taking out, uh, carving a little time out of your schedule for this TED Talk. I cannot wait to hear all the information you have. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm looking to a good con to engaging with you all in a good conversation about Ted Bundy. Awesome. And Larry, can y'all tell hear us me? a little bit? Okay, good. Yeah, we got you. You're you're good. You're in. Um, Larry, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got into this conversation. Uh, well, I am 54 years old. I've got a wonderful wife and two boys. Uh, they're in their early 20s. 
Um, I ended up in this conversation because my best little buddy when I was young, his name's Josh, and uh, he, his mother was dating Ted. And so Ted was around for a period of time uh, around Josh and I quite a bit and around my mother. And uh, yeah, that's how, it, that's how it all started. That's definitely not something I go and wear on my sleeve. You just don't talk about that stuff to people well, without. You're about ready to start wearing <laughs> I it. Know. But, you know, I welcome, know. <laughs> welcome to this esteemed panel here. And uh, so, uh, Kevin, let me tee it up for you and kind of drive us through this. Uh, so, Josh is friends with Larry. Yes. And, and his mom, Leslie. So, tell us that connection and how it circled back over into Francine. Well, um, Bundy met uh, uh, Leslie in uh, the spring slash summer of 1975 when Paul Van Dam, a uh, political guy in Salt Lake City, was having a party. That's how they met. A little technical difficulty. Uh, we lost Kevin uh, virtually. However, we do have him on the phone. Kevin, can you hear me okay? Oh, yes, I can hear you fine. Perfect. So let's um, let's explore the relationship between Larry and Josh, and how did that relationship then correlate back into uh, Francine? Tell us about that, if you will. Well, Francine knew Leslie. Now, some people say her name is pronounced Knudsen or Newton. I've heard it both ways. Uh, they they knew each other, and Francine, son was Larry, and. Uh, Leslie's child was was uh, Josh, and, and and they were friends. And so when Bundy came into Leslie's life, then what happened was Bundy uh, did with them as he had done with his girlfriend in Washington State, uh, Liz Klopfer, and her son, I mean, and, and her daughter, and uh, he he became a surrogate father to the to uh, the child and a like. You might want to say surrogate husband, or you know, like as if he was almost a husband to uh, Liz. Well, the same thing happened there with Leslie. Not nearly as long; they were together for months. But he did things with with Josh, and he incorporated him into his life, just like he had done with others. And so it would be more like a family setting. So. I'm sure that pleased Leslie a lot, and, and I understand it. But you know, there were things there that were just you know dark. And as I say in my book, The Bundy Murders, it, this relationship too was destined to fail. But that's what brought these four people together. And Larry's got some really, really interesting stories about things that happened when he was with Ted. That at the time made you know no sense it just seemed like well ted's doing this for whatever reason but it would turn out to be something very important once they discovered who ted was um for example one night when he took uh larry and and josh to the drive-in um he said he had to go to the restroom or something and or the uh you know the place to get pop whatever and he he was gone a long time, so the boys went looking for him, and they found him. This is really weird. 
and now makes a lot of sense. They found him standing at the women's restroom watching the women come and go. Well, this is exactly what he did at Lake uh, Sammamish on July 14, 1974, when he grabbed his second victim there in the afternoon, he caught her coming out of, of, of the restroom. Now, now that we know this about Bundy, you have to think about this. What was he doing? I mean, he couldn't abduct anyone, but it is clear that, I mean, he had the boys in the car, but it is clear that he was morphine and was having a desire to do this. And so he couldn't help himself and he just wanted to go and see the women coming back and forth, salivating inwardly, no doubt, but at the same time, knowing he can't do anything about it. What I'd love to know is that once he went home that night to take the boys home, did, did he go back out? And that was a standard for Bundy. But this is the relationship they had. And of course, as Francine told me, that the way Bundy conducted his life, being gone a lot at night, and he was drinking heavily. And, you know, these, these things were just, you know, she, Leslie would call up Francine and say, well, you know, can you watch, you know, uh, you know, uh, I mean, Josh tonight, because, you know, maybe he and Larry can play because I have a date with Ted. And then more often than not, she would have to cancel that. And of course that would bring a lot of frustration in, in, into her life. So, but this is how, this is kind of how that, all that functioned. And in retrospect, it's extremely interesting to look at the behavior of Bundy, but he, without question, and I think Larry would say this, he was good to him and he was good to Josh. And so, you know, I mean, it's just a, Bundy was a strange individual. Yeah. And we're going to get into that. That's fascinating. So Francine question for you, you were friends with Leslie. And so uh, help, you know, kind of paint the picture on what those dynamics were, your neighbors or, or how that, and then I, we got to hear going to the drive-in, which Kevin just talked about, Larry. I mean, you're sitting here right now to tell us what, what that was like. So Francine, uh, start, starting with you up there. Well, okay. So I was, Larry was probably, I think around seven years old, seven, eight years old, right around And your mom, so I'm everybody knows. Yeah, hey, Larry is my to hear son. That, Larry. He's my, he's no, my We love Francine. So. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and I was kind of the, I just love kids. And, and I, I, um, I was kind of the mom on the street that, you know, if people needed somebody to watch their kid or whatever, you know, they'd come to my house and I had a neat backyard with a, a, a playhouse and, games downstairs and I was kind of the house where kids would come and play. Uh, Josh and Larry met each other when Leslie moved in to my friend's duplex. Uh, I was babysitting my friend who uh, her parents owned the duplex. She lived in the duplex with, with her son and um, her son would come and I would babysit him. Um, He's adorable kid, just loved him. And, and this is how I met uh, Leslie and Josh is they kind of, you know, exchanged information and, and, you know, I was happy to, to watch Josh and, and, uh, Larry and him were the same age and they got along so well. And Josh was just a darling, darling kid. 
And I loved having him around. And he was Larry's best friend. And it was wonderful. And um, I I knew Leslie first, very intelligent woman. Um, she taught school. She was wonderful, um, very well put together and uh, from a very good family, it appeared and everything. And she was just a, a neat lady. And I had no questions about anything. And then when she met Ted, uh, Ted was living with her and moved in with her. And why would I question Ted? I mean, you know, this woman is a real upstanding woman and, you know, very bright. And and Ted was a law student and going to the University of Utah and he was handsome and he was engaging. Um, you know, he was just uh, he was just a very friendly and uh, and seemed to me a very caring person. And and um, I I really got to know him because um he would sometimes watch Josh or he'd take Josh places and Josh wanted Larry to go with them. And, and so Larry and Josh were like a little team. And so when they went places, they went together with Ted. And when Ted took them, they went together. And, and so I, I had no question that there would be any issue or anything. And he, in fact, he was so nice. And he, and um, I don't know, Larry, you might remember this. You, you got mad at me and ran away from home. Uh, I think you were on your bike, weren't you? <laughs> You know, I must have done something terrible because you ran a few blocks away. But um, Ted um, went looking for him. You know, um, I don't I don't know that I had a car at that time, but I know that Ted helped find him. And I'll let Larry tell you about that story. That's how I came into the picture is, you know, we were just kind of like neighbors and friends kids that played together and Ted was man uh, he was not only good looking he was a law student and he cared about my son so I'll let you know, Larry take it from there on your runaway yeah the runaway the runaway incident um there's parts of it I remember pretty well but it was uh it was it used to be a Kmart remember those those stores uh, it's now a Walmart now but I just took off on my bike and thought I'd, you know, be all independent and run away. And um, I, I remember him. I remember him coming up to me and saying, you know, let's get you back home. And, you know, put my, put my bike in the car and brought me back home. But yeah, the, uh, the uh, incident at the drive-in is probably one of the more vivid memories I have of, of Ted. Tell us about and that. We were, uh, it was just the three of us. Um, Leslie wasn't there. It was, so Ted, you know, put us in the car and we went to the Redwood Drive-In is what it's called. He said he was going to be back. I don't know. You know, I'm going to go get some popcorn or something. But it took so long and we finally, you know, we didn't want to do the wrong thing. We're supposed to stay put, but we just were like, we got to go find him. Um, so we got out of the car. I I just can't remember how long it was, but it was it was a long time. And uh, I go into the uh, into the uh, the snack bar, centrally located in the theater property. And uh, there's a line that kind of would wrap around to the women's bathroom. And he was standing there by the uh, by the women's restroom, and you know. Sometimes I'm standing there waiting for my wife, you know, so it's not too terrible. I guess it might not look too suspicious, but he wasn't waiting. There, he didn't have a date, you know. He wasn't waiting on a wife or, or something, you know. He was he was there just 
scoping it out. I don't know. I think Kevin's right. I, I think that could have really been a, uh, a big night for him mentally and to, to be, to realize, you know, yeah, I'm stuck with these kids. I can't be doing this. And to take us back home that evening, he's probably all wound up inside. Well, you know, Bundy talked about, you know, he talked about the thing that would rise in him, you know, and like an entity or whatever. And he talked about that building pressure. Well, without question, that pressure had to have been building. And that's why he went, and it could have been set off by a particular woman he saw. You know, Bunny once said, I, I saw this woman and I knew I just had to have her. So he could have spotted a particular woman. And then it just, it started to build. And then here comes all these women back and forth. And at that moment, without question, I believe that was rising within him. And uh, I think, you know, we can't prove it and we'll never know. But I think he likely went back out that night to hunt for a victim. Whether he got one that night, I don't know. But when that is building, when, when that thing was building within him, when that pressure, um, it was something that he would not try to put out of himself. He would just flow with it and he would go with it. I remember once he said he picked up a hitchhiker and when he was telling the story, this this writer he laughed he said i was in my reformation period and he said i picked up this girl and i didn't have a desire to murder her but you know and we went somewhere and we had sex and he said the sex was really good spontaneous and um he said in the midst of it he said he could almost feel a little pressure to to take her life but he decided not to uh and he, so you know in the next morning he just dropped her off near near to where she lived but he did say that had this happened just a couple weeks after that he's he he feels he would have killed her because he said that entity that pressure just not was was not as active at that time and i think he was trying to prove to himself that he could take a stance and not murder somebody but even even the thing about Bundy and he's a mystery he's an enigma um he didn't know why he was like this but he never certainly fought against it either and he just he was a killing machine and if you look at this woman that he was having a good time with and having sex with you, you have to think, why did that even cross his mind if he was not being driven by that entity? And yet it did. And so for Bundy, this whole thing was about murder. And, you know, it, it's a mystical thing with, with, with killers like this, the, the place where they murder them and uh, dump them. And they are not always the same location. But they become very special to these uh, these these uh, these people, and those places become very mystical and a part of them. And they also consider those that they murder a part of them. So they just live on a different mental plane than most humans uh, inhabiting this planet. And it's just a real mystery of why he was this way. You know the. Um, the scientists and things like that they can do studies on psychopaths and they can see changes within their brains and uh 
when certain things are happening. And that tells them the physiological things that are happening, say, within the brain when that occurs. But it doesn't tell them why they are that way. And I remember um, when I was writing my book, The Bundy Murders, which was originally published in 2009, and the the publisher um, republished it uh, in 2020 with some new information um, that I added to the book in, in an expanded edition. But the thing about people like this is that, you know, I mean, if you if you study the case of Bundy, I remember once that, and I was friends with Dr. Al Carlisle, who has passed away. He died in 2018. Uh, and a number of the people I worked with passed away. But I remember I was looking at, at where Bundy would hunt women. And I was uh, noticing that some of these women would say when they first encountered Bundy, and he was hunting, that his eyes looked normal. He was conversing with them. But on some occasions, and this happened at um, Central Washington St- State College, where he ultimately got Susan Rancor, but th- there was a woman who testified, I believe this was Jane Curtis, that even though like his eyes were normal at the beginning, she was, you know, he was on, he had a sling on his arm on crutches. He had uh heavy books and he had some packages that he had made with um covered with you know paper and tied with strings and of course women are going to say normal women do you need some help with that and so this one lady did and she didn't mention anything about his eyes being abnormal but as they got halfway to where his car was which was parked in the, the very most secluded place the on campus um by a railroad trestle where there was no parking there was high grass and no buildings in the immediate vicinity uh just one building like 150 feet away and she turned to talk to him and looked at him as they were going to the car she noticed his eyes had changed and they were very weird so as I was writing the book, I thought I need to find out about that. And I, I, I contacted Al Carlisle and I asked him about that. And he said, well, there are numerous studies. He's talked to numerous women that he uh, had interviewed who were attacked by men, uh, whether it was going to be murder or not. Maybe it was just rape. Now, I don't say just rape, but with no intention of taking their lives. And they, too, noticed a change in the eyes just moments before they were attacked. And he said, uh, you, you could lay that to a, like a neural transmitter changing, it, like in the, I guess the brain, and it comes through, through the eyes. And so what was going on with Bundy at that moment? What, what's going on with him is that not only was he in that altered state of murder, but once he sensed somebody was about to become his, even if they would ultimately get away, then that depth of um, perversity and violence and things would wrap would ramp up. And so Carlo Carlo gave me the answer as to why that was. So, you know, I don't know. Well, uh, so it's a it's a physiological it. change. I mean, it, that that's oh, taking yes. place. Is that Absolutely. what you're saying? Yeah. Oh yes, yes. 
based on what's going on inside him. So I don't know if Larry remembers, but Larry, if you did you notice any change in Bundy's eyes that night after you found him checking out women at the drive-in near the restaurant? You know, that's a good question. I I uh, I I think I kind of remember uh, he might have been irritated that you know. Oh, I bet. We came in and we found him, and so I, you know, I, I assume that's uh, yeah. That would be what I would sense is that he was irritated about the whole thing. Yeah. But well, he not only just changed his eye, but, Yeah. Yeah. No, he changed the way he looked a lot too. I mean, I've seen pictures of him. They looks like a completely different man. It, the hairstyle, <laughs> the look in his eyes. I mean, it, it looked almost like he had different personalities. Yeah, when you when you see those pictures, and and I I in fact Kevin, I remember asking Kevin, you know, how come you know he liked women with long dark hair parted in the middle, which was a common way we wore hair back then, you know, but Kevin told me he says yeah. if he liked you and you know he knew you, he would not hurt you, and he was he. Right. But when I saw those pictures, they had the, the several pictures of him. I think there were six or eight. I can't remember, but. They, I thought he's got to, he's got to have another personality or something because this, this isn't the Ted Bundy I knew and didn't even look like him. Well, Judge Hanson, who when Bundy was on trial uh, uh, for the kidnapping of Carol Durange in Salt Lake City, obviously, um, Judge, and, and of course it went to a bench trial, and both attorneys, prosecution and the defense, agreed to a bench trial, which means that there would be no jury; it would be up to the judge. And Judge Hanson was a fair judge, so everybody was even even Bunny's lawyer, uh, John O'Connell, was okay with it. But O'Con uh, Hanson said, Bundy came into the uh, court one morning and looked a certain way. They broke for lunch. He came back afterwards. And he said he looked like almost a completely different person. It was weird. I mean, it was enough for Hanson to notice how odd it was. And I don't think it had anything to do with a change of clothes. It wasn't. It was something to do with Bundy. Maybe he did something to his hair a little bit. Maybe he did. But he looked like a different person. And I don't think you can always lay it to. If you look at those pictures, he just looks so different. That's why they called this guy. He was like a chameleon. So. Yeah, very strange uh, stuff. But again, get, getting back to that that thing where he would be in that. Uh, and Francine has, um, you, 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 she got to see him a lot. Francine, I just wanted to ask you, did, did you ever notice anything about him that, uh, like in his eyes, did you ever notice any kind of a change at all? There was one time I, I remember quite clearly, um, he, Leslie had asked me to watch Josh on a weekend. Um, so they go water skiing, her and Ted could go water skiing. They were going to go water skiing. And, you know, of course I said, yes. I mean, you know, Josh was always over at my house anyway, and no problem at all. I'd love yeah. it. And um, right. she, called, she called me the next day and she said, I'm sorry. Um, Ted didn't come home last night. Uh, I think she said she, he probably went to go. He goes and visits his mother or something. And so there was always a reason. Um, but um, I remember um, she, so little things like that. But one night, one day, 
um, I was watching him and he had just gotten back from his mom. And I don't know if it was that weekend or what had happened, but she asked me to draw. She was teaching school. And so it might've been on that Monday morning. I don't know, but uh, she asked me to, you know, uh, go ahead and drop Josh off, you know, uh, after him and Larry were done playing at, at the house and Ted was there. And so um, I took Josh over to, you know, we walked up to the duplex and I took him to the house and the curtains were drawn and, you know, usually in the day, you know, they're open. Um, and I knocked on the door and nobody answered. And so I knocked again because she said he was there and I could see someone peek out of the side of the curtain. And then they opened the door just enough so I could see him. And he looked, it, it, I mean, it was dark in the house. That whole house was so dark and I didn't want to let Josh into the house. I just felt like, Oh, this is strange. You know, I, what's, you know, that's, you know, he's coming from this happy, fun place to this dark place. But, you know, I had no reason really, but I remember looking at him and he looked, he looked so worn out. He looked so, he, he looked terrible. He just did not look good. And yeah. I thought maybe he was sick. Yeah. I thought maybe something was wrong, you know, so I left Josh there and I think about it now. I think, how could I do such a thing? I mean, I mean, I had a couple of wake up calls like that, but I remember that. And because he was always well put together. Whenever I'd see him, he was well put together and he looked terrible. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember yeah. I just had this foreboding feeling at that time because the curtains were drawn. It was dark in the house. And do I let yeah. this little boy? Yeah, I remember that. So, yes. so question. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. So question, uh, Larry, I mean, well, Francine, how old was Larry at the time? I mean, he was eight? like seven, seven, eight years old, right around there. Right okay, around so there. enough to still have cognitive mem memory. Oh, yeah. You know, Larry was always really time. sharp. He remembered a lot of stuff. I had to be careful with him. He what a great mom, Larry. I mean, you can't get better compliments than that. I mean, <laughs> you know, wait. He caused me some problems telling things he shouldn't yeah, be I mean, <laughs> I mean, you've got a mom who used to hang out with Ted Bundy. How how cool is that? You know, I mean, you can't get any better than that, you know. So so you know how boys talk right? Eight, nine, 10. What were you and Josh talking about? Were there any one-offs that Josh would say to you? Like, you know, Hey, you know, do you, are you getting where I'm going there? You know, we're not supposed to be here today, you know, bad day over in, in the living room here. Like were your mom's just there. Uh, yeah. I, one incident in particular was, was, uh, which might be what you're asking. He, uh, Leslie was there and we were at Josh's house. She was there and Ted was there and Ted was locked up in his room. The door was shut and uh, we were playing uh, a board game and I guess we were a little loud. She's like, you guys need to go outside and play. You know, Ted's not feeling well or something. He need things need to be quiet. This is the middle of the day. And I remember specifically seeing a food tray uh, sitting on the floor outside the door uh the bedroom door and uh so he wasn't even letting leslie in to bring him food and uh you know middle of the day i don't know is it you know it, it just didn't, didn't, right. didn't feel right didn't look did it did you ever get uh a sense of this instinct that there's danger around you in any way if you remember uh, a feeling, not like a sixth sense type of thing, but, um, he did 
he took us swimming once and he he really upset he he scared the crap out of me what happened and, well there was this there's a swimming pool up by the university of utah university of utah has a uh, old military port on it, fort douglas and fort douglas had a swimming pool and um he took us swimming up there he took us a few times but uh, Josh thought it was funny. He, he says, you're going to love this game. You know, he calls it, Ted calls it shark, play shark. And, you know, I'm, I'm just a little guy and I'm not this expert swimmer or anything. I mean, I can swim, but the rules were you had to swim across the deep end. And while you were swimming, he would come up under you like a shark. And I remember he came up under me and he pulled me down and I remember panicking, um, he would bite you like a shark, you know, shark bite. And uh, did he physically bite you? I mean, a small, or was he using his hands? He didn't, he didn't draw blood, but yeah, he bit. He used his mouth. Yeah. What? Well, well, that's interesting. Hang on, hang on to that thought right there, because Kevin, didn't he on yes. some of his uh, escapades and murders? Biting was a big part of his uh, mo, wasn't it? Well, he did. He did bite once, and it was purely an animalistic response. He bit the buttocks of, I believe it was Lisa Levy. Of course, it was one of the Chi Omega victims. And but I, I think that's the only time he did that. But here's the thing about Bundy: uh, the reason why Bundy would pull him under. I mean, and I, I wrote about that shark thing too. And I, I think that the what he was doing there. He didn't want to hurt either boy, obviously, but he wanted to inflict a little fear because he he enjoyed doing that. He he admitted he enjoyed, you know, Liz, Liz said he would sometimes jump out from a bush and frighten me, and he'd done that to others. So he really enjoyed putting fear into people. And so that's what I'm sure he thought that was funny, but but it wasn't. and. Um, Speaking of that, so as well as far as the biting is, is I, I don't know, I don't recall anybody else being bitten, but he did do that biting, and he had really screwed up teeth, and so you know the the cops, you know, when they got there, even before they moved the body, somebody took a ruler and laid it next to and was measuring that bite mark, and uh, you know after of course they made. Uh, the dental uh, molds of his teeth. Of course, they match perfectly. But I think that's the only time he bit. Now, some people think that he tortured victims uh, physically. There might I would I would say no to that. Except he could have done certain things that could wouldn't be torture necessarily. But one thing we do know, he did enjoy psychologically torturing victims. Here's the thing about Bundy. Here was his MO. Bundy's MO could change a little bit, but it was pretty standard. There were times when he would attack a victim, crash a tire iron into their head, and a couple of these victims woke up and began to talk, and he would have to hit them again to knock them out. He didn't want them conscious, and two of those were uh, Julie Cunningham and uh, George Ann Hawkins, he wanted them completely out so that he could do what he wanted to. That's the kind of, to them, and that's the kind of mental state he was in. However, there were times when he would 
without question, psychologically torture people. And a good example of this was when he abducted um, Ju uh, Janet, Janice Ott uh, around noon, maybe a few minutes before at Lake Sammamish, uh, Lake Sammamish and he took her to, in, in Washington State, and he took her to a location. We're not sure if it was a cabin, had her tied to a tree. We're just not completely sure. And of course, the sexual assaults would occur, and but he kept her alive. And when he abducted Denise Nasland uh, at around 4.20, 4.30 p.m. Uh, at the lake again, back at the lake, trying to make a statement, and he wasn't also satiated, so he needed another victim. He took her back to where Janice was, and we wouldn't know that Janice was alive until later, and he admitted it. But what he was trying to do there, of course, the here's, you know, Denise Naslin abducted by a man. She sees another, takes her to the place where Janice is. They're terrified. Bundy said very, there wasn't really anything spoken between them. I think they both knew where this thing was going. And he enjoyed that terror. He could have easily killed ought and avoided that and then done whatever he wanted to with with Naslin, but he didn't want to. So there was times when he would psychologically torture people. We know that. His MO was was to when he committed the murder, sometimes he'd have sex with them prior to the, you know, which would be essentially a rape. He used to take photographs of them too, uh, Polaroids. And when he was arrested uh, and uh, in Salt Lake City, and they went and searched his apartment. This would be uh, in uh, like October of 75. Um, they, of course, didn't find any pictures because those were down in the utility room. And once he got out, he destroyed those. But he would take his time with a lot of these women, make them pose and things. And people suspect that the poses he would have them do would reflect what he had seen on the detective magazines. Yeah. If you remember those from 1960s, there was like six of them that were published uh, throughout the, the, the decades from the 1920s or 30s all the way to, I guess they stopped finally sometime in the 1980s, but they would have these large-breasted women on there. They'd be being attacked by a man. Yep. Maybe he was choking or whatever. And so he used to like to, you know, duplicate those. So he would take time with them. And when he did take take time with them, some of this, of course, psychological terror would come out, but he normally murdered them, whether they were unconscious the whole time or not. And it really all depended on what Bundy wanted at the moment. Interesting. So, yeah, just terrible. Well, I, one thing, I, one oh. thing I wanted to say as a mother, my son, Larry, when he came, when he came home telling me, he's, he looked at me, it must have upset him terribly because he looked at me and said, I don't want to go swimming with Ted anymore. And, and remember, I, I thought Ted was an okay guy. And, and I, and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, shocked. I said, well, why not? Because I wanted to find out, you know, I, in my head, what popped in was, you know, he's probably tried to touch my son inappropriately or something like this. And I yeah. said, why not? Yeah. And he goes, well, because he plays this game called shark and he bites me. <laughs> 
And I'm, and in my head, I'm thinking, I used to mess around in the swimming pool and we push each other in the deep end and sometimes we dunk each other, but never did we scare each other like that. And, and that's, you know, and right. he's a young kid and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. And I says, okay, I said, this is, this is when I think my antenna really started to go up with Ted. And, yep. and I said, okay, then you're not going swimming with anymore. You don't have how long, to. How long had you known him uh, before this incident? If you remember. Um, it had been a while enough that I trusted him, you know, taking, yeah. taking my son swimming because he didn't just take him to Fort Douglas. Larry, didn't he take you to uh, Fairmont park as well? Yeah. Fairmont park. He took us to play tennis at Fairmont. That, at least that's all I remember about Fairmont and Ted was the tennis. Yeah, course. Cause, because he, he'd take him quite often. Fairmont park was in the sugar house area by where we lived at the time. And it was a nice park, family park. And I went there when I was a little girl and, and I had good memories. And, and I, you know, so he'd take him there. And then he started taking him up to, you know, I, I remember when he took him up to Fort Douglas. But when Larry told me that, um, that really bothered me. And I, and I thought, mm -hmm. okay, I, I kind of put on my guard at about that point, you know, with Ted. Mm -hmm. So out of curiosity, how did... Uh... What what do you think the signs were that Leslie may have seen? Did she ever share any of that girlfriend to girlfriend? And then no, Larry, tell me what she was very private. She, she was very private in her life. She was very private. In fact, um, I I remember um, when they arrested Ted in Salt Lake. I remember I was sitting in the living room and. Larry, I don't know if you were there or not. I can't remember if you were in bed or not. But I remember the news came on. And they said they had arrested Theodore Bundy. And I, I looked and I said, that's Ted, because I always called him Ted. I went, oh, my God, that's Ted. And I couldn't mm -hmm. believe it. I, I was shocked. And I, Leslie was a very private person. And the only thing I remember is she started packing her stuff. And I guess you know, it wasn't right there immediately. It was barely shortly after that. And I went up there and she's packing and she gave me some of Ted's stuff, which I don't know that I have anymore. I think I gave Larry, um, don't you still have Ted? That We named the plant Ted. It was in, okay. a, in a pot and, and it was, yeah. So, and we, and I didn't say, did you water you Ted? You named it Ted? We named it Ted. And it was, was it Bundy's flower pot? Yeah. Yeah. And she, she wanted anything. Right? She she didn't want anything. Is that anything. the one behind you? No, <laughs> no Larry has it. Larry, oh, it that's that just, it. It was just. I think the plant looked just like that one. The type of plant. Yeah, it was a sword. But type the pot plant. is the pot is broken. But I have the pieces. <laughs> oh my gosh! It's kind of yeah. Oh, I, yeah. So I we had that for Leslie. years and years. Yeah. So anyway, so she packed. Yeah. She go ahead, Larry. No, finish your thought. No, that's what she was saying. She packed up. Boy, she, I, I remember Ted or, or Josh coming. He was crying. Uh, he's basically saying goodbye. I'm not going to see you again. Said, I'm like, well, where are you? Mm -hmm. We got to move. We got to leave. Interesting. So yeah, this, the end of Josh. I think this, yeah, I, I can't, I, I know that she, a lot happened. You know, I don't know if it was right immediately after. I, I do remember, um, you know, that she, she, she moved quite far away. And I remember when he escaped out of Colorado, um, I was very concerned for her and I called the FBI. 
um, to let them know, you know, um, where she was living. And because I was concerned that, you know, he would do something to her, but then Kevin kind of put me to rest on, you know, he wouldn't hurt anybody that he, that he knew or anything. So that was kind of good. But at that time I was, I was very concerned and she was out, like she was, boom, she was gone. And she, she had a job, her family here. So you can imagine what, what this has done to her, you know, um, knowing that she was sharing time with this fellow, this man who she loved and wanted to get married to. Uh, she was going to try to go to law school with him. They had plans. And for this to happen, um, what this must have done to her, you know, um, it was, it would be awful. So he's and, really I, I, living I, this. He's really huh? living this. He's really yeah. living this facade. She, this, this, uh, oh, all the time he's there, he's killing people. And that year he was there, he's killing people around here. And 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 she's she's got him in her home and with her son. And and this is a, a fatal mistake a lot of women make. Sometimes they really don't know the history of the person they're bringing into their child's life or their life. And and we trust right. them and, and we think they're going to be okay. One thing I do want to say about Kevin's book, though, and, and how Hev, Kevin and I got connected, I had read a lot of Ted Bundy books. But when I read Kevin's on, because they never mentioned him living in Utah with Leslie or on this street. It was never mentioned, you know, that he was, he was involved with another woman while he's pretending he's loving this other woman. And, um, I, I saw Kevin's book, uh, on, uh, it was, uh, Ted Bundy, a comprehensive history. And I was amazed. He, Kevin had everything on this timeline and everything was so accurate. I just had to reach out to him and say, I am so glad that you finally, you know, you brought this yeah. up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, Kevin, tell us, I mean, you've written 16 books. Uh, and, yes. you know, so tell us about um, the investigative part of, you know, how you connected Bundy's life to these crimes in, in, your, in yeah. your writings as a whole. Well, it is an interesting story, and I have to say, and I, anytime I'm on a show or a podcast or whatever, I'll, I'll say that, well, I never had any intention of writing about Ted Bundy, but I have a friend, he's passed away now, Jim Massey. He was a probation and parole officer here in Kentucky for, uh, you know, he retired out of it. He, I guess he was there about maybe 27, 28 years, but Back in, uh, you know, when I met Jim, uh, which is probably around 2000 and uh, maybe three, 2002, maybe, I'm not sure. He had, he had known Jerry Thompson for 20 years or more. He, he had known him since the early 1980s. Uh, it, but anyway, we would talk about Thompson. Well, Thompson told Jerry uh, uh, Jerry Thompson told my friend Jim Massey he was coming to Louisville. So Jim knew I was a fledgling writer. I had one book published and another book finished, and uh, it was going to go to a, I was shopping it to a publisher. So he was aware of all that, and uh, he invited me to dinner with them. And on the morning, I mean, on the, uh, yeah, in the uh, morning of the day when Thompson got here and we were supposed to meet for dinner, Jerry's, uh, I mean, Jim called me and let me know and where we're going to meet. And I said, great, I'm looking forward to it. At the time, I was writing some articles for, uh, I, I had written, I wasn't on staff, but I was, uh, I would submit 
articles to a paper called a print weekly newspaper called Snitch about crime and the law. And it was published in five states at the time, although it originated here in Louisville, also published in Lexington, Kentucky. And uh, it turns out that um, I thought, well, maybe this would make a nice little article to write about. And I'll, I'll send it to Snitch and it'll, it'll become a feature for that week. Anyway, so he said right before we stopped talking and I'm about ready to hang up the phone, he said he brought the bag. And I said, wait, what bag? He said, Ted Bundy's murder kit. I said, oh, really? And I had remembered that he had talked about Jerry having that kit uh, because, you know, he had been convicted in, for the crime of the Carol DeRange thing. Then he was transferred to Colorado and escaped there twice, made ways to Florida, killed there and executed. So they didn't know what to do with the bag. Jerry said, give it to me. I'll use it in, uh, in, in like uh, as a teaching tool in crime seminars, which he did. He brings the bag to Louisville. He turns it over to Jim for two. Well, they were here, I think, four days. He said, just take the bag. I, I, I know you'd like to look at it, maybe show your friends down at probation and parole. And so I called Jim up one night. So we have a nice dinner. We talk around the pool. And, and I get to interview Jerry. And he's a really nice guy. And I got his autograph in one of the books that I had on Bundy. And um, a couple nights later, I called Jim. I said, would you mind if I brought this up to my house? I'd like to uh, photograph it. He said, sure. I came and got it. It was uh, it was dark by this time. And as I drove home with this bag in my passenger seat, just like Monday used to have it, and I would pass under, uh, you know, street lamps, and it would, it would illuminate it called my wife and I said, I'm bringing Ted Bundy's murder kit in the house. So if there's anything on the dining room table, if we could clear it off. She wasn't, oh, too, happy. She wasn't too happy about the murder kit coming. So I brought it there. My son-in-law was there and we arranged it, took photographs. And I released those photographs to the internet years ago. Through Before Thompson left, uh, he and his wife, Jean, nice people. He's, he, like I say, he died a few years ago. Um, Jim said, I want you to meet us back over at the uh, hotel at the Burger Ridge Inn, which was just torn down like six months ago here in Louisville, and they're putting up another building, but not too far from my house. And um, as we got there and talked again, um, Jerry gave me one of the large, glad green trash bags that Bundy, from Bundy's murder kit that, that he used to put the victim's clothes in that he would dump somewhere down the road not anywhere near the body and he gave jim one and i said jerry would you mind writing us both a letter of authentication and he did so and i went into the hotel and i grabbed i thought it would be nice to have it on um some letterhead of the hotels you know uh, the brick and ridge Inn. and so he did that i still have that uh, and so what happened to me was i did write the article snitch i thought that would be it but it wasn't it kept really churning in me to to write about Bundy. Well, my hope was, and, and even Jim said, don't do it. He's been done to death, but there've been no books published about Bundy for many years. And um, so I said, well, I'm going to anyway. Sometimes you got to go with what you know on the inside. Well, when I was halfway through the book, I was finding out brand new information about the murders that had never been published before, but were 
confirmed by the record or the detectives, the, the main detectives I dealt with, and a lot of new general information about the case. And I knew when I was halfway th through the book, I had something special on my hands. And so I was able, once I completed it, it was a two and a half year, I want to say marathon journey, because it was really working night and day on that thing every day, seven days a week. And um, I was able to sell it to a publisher, even without the help of an agent within about three weeks. And uh, the, another publisher had sent out six query letters. Another pub publisher quickly contacted me and said, we'd like to sign you right here for this book. And I said, I can't. I've already signed the contract with someone else. But when the book was released, and it, nobody knew who I was, it took time for the book to build. But once it did start to build and people got to read this, um, they became very interested in it. And they saw that it contained stuff that the other books did not. And in fact, a friend of mine had lunch with Stephen Michaud, uh, the writer of The Only Living Witness, along with Hugh Ainsworth, and they also wrote Conversations of a Killer. He was talking to Michaud, uh, and, and my friend had my book with him, The Bundy Murders. Michaud picked it up and he said, you know, there are things in this that even I didn't know, which was a, considered a great compliment because Michelle knows the case extremely well. But that's just the kind of digging I did. And um, I wouldn't uh, stop until I found an answer for what I was looking for. And I wasn't able to uncover a lot of new things. So uh, after a while, uh, documentarians were calling me from the UK. By, it took much longer. I mean, uh, for uh, the U.S., for some reason, for the U.S. documentarians starting to use my book as a guide for their programs, but they did, and I noticed it. And they started contacting me to do their shows, and they were using it as a guidebook. And it's no. And when people ask, I had a guy from Hollywood call me, and he said, "Kevin, I think they're, um, I think Reels is using your book because they're following it so closely." I said, "They are, in fact." Um, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I'll, I'll be on the show. He had some, some foreknowledge of it. And, um, so he said, he said, well, I could tell they were. And, uh, so I think what the documentarians were going to do was try to get it right because a lot of the documentaries, and I don't know why this is, uh, but a lot of the documentaries before they started getting a hold of my book, you know, the Bundy Murders had them focusing almost entirely on Bob Keppel and everybody in Washington State with sprinklings of things in Utah and Florida, but it really centered on them. And the truth of the matter is they didn't catch him. He was caught in Utah and he was finally put to death in Florida. And in fact, Mike Fisher, who worked very closely with me, the Colorado investigator, he was the first person to get uh, a murder warrant placed against Bundy for the murder of Karen Campbell uh, from the Wildwood Inn. So anyway, it just took off like that. And and what has driven, I've written the Bundy murders and then five other additional books on Bundy, all of which have brand new information in it, uh, testimonies from people who are valid contacts with Bundy. And um, it's all been driven since the Bundy murders by people contacting me, and I would interview them, and they're and 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 I'd have this information 
And if I wasn't going to write another book, I wouldn't know what to do with it. But I thought, why should this go into the dustbin of history? I know about it and no one else does. So my publishers were always on board with printing another book because it had so much new information in it. And then when I finally got done with what I thought was going to be done with Bundy, um, I got more information and I thought, this is really astounding. Should I let this go? And I discussed it with some people and they say, no, I wouldn't let it go either. So after writing six books about the main one being the Bundy Murders Comprehensive History, which is a full bio of Bundy and a full treatment of the murders. Um, I started writing a thing called the Yearly Journal, and I put one out, and I said I would probably do this yearly. It looks like it's going to be every couple of years because I'm writing a huge book on the Nazis and the Holocaust, not just with the Jews, but people in the East and, you know, the, the Eastern peoples that they called Untermenschen. So I'm on this big other book, so it's probably going to have to wait. But, but as new information comes in, I just keep publishing stuff, and people just keep contacting me. Now, a lot of people that contact me, they don't really – I can't include their information because they're lacking things. They weren't in the area when they thought it was Bundy, and they thought it was Bundy, but it turned out not to be. But So this thing has kind of rolled on its own, and I'm very pleased about it because every time a book was published about – that I published about Bundy – and by the way, those six volumes are – like 1,482 pages altogether. Yeah, they're kind That's of, wild. they're utilized in, I mean, obviously in law enforcement circles, they're pretty much the Bible. Oh, yeah. They're pretty much the Bible. If you want to understand, you know, what yeah. this guy outside of, you know, going to the BAU and, you know, tapping into their yeah. minds a little bit, because early on, sure, I mean, you know, that you were kind of the cutting edge once you took it, took the project on. To connect those, yeah. to connect those dots. One, one thing uh, he's got. One thing Kevin's put out. Yep. Yeah, go ahead, Francine. Go ahead. Oh, one thing that Kevin has put out that's really, you know, kind of it, it, it's the encyclopedia, Kevin, that you put yes, out. Yes, it is. I have an encyclopedia. It's an yeah. interesting story about that. I had a guy contact me two days after one of my Bundy books came out, and he said, "Have you?" thought about writing an encyclopedia about the Bundy Murders. I said, do you realize I just got done with the book? I just, it was just published two days ago and we both laughed about that. And <laughs> he said, uh, he said, he said, well, I, I do a lot of the civil war stuff and I don't have time for it. If I did, I would do it myself. I said, well, let me put that on the back shelf and I'll, I'll see what, what happens. And after a few days, I think about the, about it, I thought, well, that kind of sounds like a good idea. It might even be fun to write because I'll get to contact people who used to write newspaper articles about them. And, you know, it might be an interesting thing to do. And I don't have to go into a lot of murders or whatever, that, that dark stuff at, at all. I just have to kind of tell what role people had in the case. And um, so I said, well, let me, I told him, I said, I'll, I'll run it by my publisher. I did. They liked the idea immediately. So I started on that, and then that turned into uh, uh, the encyclopedia of the Ted Bundy murder. So, and that's, yeah, a good, I mean, that's a really good. It, that's a really good thing if people want to just grab something and just kind of mm -hmm. you know look at it. Um, it's really good. Yeah. That, and, we'll, uh, and we'll have all those links below at the end oh, of the good. podcast. Yeah, because that, that is. I mean, it, you know, I grab love it. the books, and and uh, you know, Audible is. I listen to these, you know, when I'm driving around and stuff. But that's really oh, fun. Nice. In fact, that's Kevin. You know, did um, talk to uh, uh, me and 
I think I did a couple of pictures. I can't remember how many I did, Kevin. We took pictures of in Salt Lake um, where, uh-huh. where Ted lived. Okay. there. So the duplex yes. where, where Larry would go play with Josh uh, yeah. is there. And, and wasn't, wasn't his original, didn't we take a photo of the original place that he moved into prior to moving in with, with uh, Leslie? Well, that was a 565 First Avenue. Yeah. And now I've had, I got pictures of that myself, but I remember you were very kind to do that for me and I gave you credit in the book. Oh, yeah, I just was wondering about that one, that one that was, yeah, that was one more, yeah, yeah. More right around there, that two story where you go up the stairs. Yeah, that was 364 Douglas Avenue. Yeah, so yeah. I was wondering about that yeah. one. Tell, me, tell yes. us about that. Well, the three, yeah, if you look at 364 Douglas Avenue, it looks identical to when Bundy was there. He lived in the upstairs apartment and he walked up those steps. And I was told by a fella that is also a researcher. And he said that, you know, when Bundy brought that truck from um, from Washington State, even though he originally moved there with a lot of stuff in his car, uh, uh, his, his VW, he went back got his brother Glenn to move back with his truck loaded with furniture and stuff like that. Uh, th- this researcher told me that that truck was parked in the garage in the back for quite some time. I think even after Bundy, you know, was, uh, was, was jailed. And then, you know, so I don't know what happened to that truck, but it was there, but yeah, 364 Douglas, as well as 565, 565 First Avenue, uh, they all look exactly like, I mean, if Bundy were back, he'd recognize it immediately. People that lived in 565 from First Avenue know it's been virtually unchanged. However, if you go, I didn't I didn't ever go into Bundy's apartment, but if you go into Bundy's apartment, um, that has been uh, remodeled. So it probably looks pretty much different than what, than, than, I think the wall was knocked out too. But as far as it goes, Bundy, Live today they got he lived in number two of uh, the apartment two and back then two was at the top of the steps on the right and now it's five and so they've got two marked on the bottom so if you don't know anybody and just go up there you think oh well, here's his apartment no his was upstairs up up the steps but but in any event yeah, great pictures you got, Francine, of the duplex. Well, I, I was excited because I had never, I had, I mean, I felt an honor you asked me because I had never, you know, appreciate those. Yeah, well, there is that other yeah. picture where where it was by a bank uh, where he got a yeah. picture. Can you tell us about that? Well, well, now, there, the bank picture, yeah, I, I don't think I used that one. I don't think. Uh, no. But I remember getting um, that. Didn't he get somebody there? Well, here's what happened there. Louise Cannon, who is a um, she she doesn't like to go on podcasts, but but I I got her name from uh, Carol Bartholomew, who was a Bundy. Well, she's not a survivor, but she knew Bundy as her husband Wayne Bartholomew. But there's a famous picture before Carol and Wayne were married, taken by Wayne, of. And she was a pretty blonde lady. Well, she's still alive, I think. And she's standing there, like doing the dishes with Bundy. And he's got this, he's trying to be funny, but it almost looked like an evil smile. 
uh, a smirk and he's like holding the rinsing the rinsing gun at her and that's a famous picture well that was uh that was uh wayne who took that and then later wayne started dating carol uh hall and she became carol bartholomew anyway carol after i interviewed her she also gave me the name of uh louise cannon and louise cannon worked in the bank uh at that was very close uh kind of like um just um caddy corner two blocks from where bundy's uh, place was at 364 douglas you could in fact you come out of the 364 you just walk to the corner you you could see the bank and so he liked um he liked uh her you know louise and he, he had no plans to murder her. There were women that Bundy wanted to date, and then there were women Bundy wanted to murder. And he didn't really want to murder anybody. He knew he, he, he would tell investigators this in Florida. Anyway, so he would do things. He would come and always stand in her line, and she would talk to him. And there was a woman. This is so bizarre, but cool at the same time. There was, a, there was another teller that worked there. When she saw Bundy, she would not wait on him. And when 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 uh, Louise asked why, she said he's a killer. Look at those eyes. And of course, nothing had come out about Bundy. He hadn't been arrested yet. I mean, he hadn't been arrested. He hadn't come forth as to who he was. He had, he had had his August arrest, but that hadn't got, gone into public, and uh, you know, for evading an officer. But anyway, this was before the big thing broke about him, and she wouldn't wait on this guy anyway. Bundy was trying to do things. He always talked to Louise. When it snowed there, he would come up there because a lot of times after she would leave the teller position, the bank would close. Louise told me that the um, drive-thru would remain open and she would work the drive-thru and he would come over there if there's snow and he'd wipe the car off. And one day he said, can we just go down the alley and have coffee at this place? She said, sure. And they went down and they had coffee. Well, this is this is so astounding, and I'm so glad I was able to discover this. Uh, by the way, I said of the detectives, I asked Louise, has, have you ever been interviewed by a writer? She said, no. I mean, I was interviewed by the detectives, but that's it. I said, okay, well, that's interesting. And so anyway, she said that, Louise said that on October 18th, and she knew Bundy, and he was very talkative. That's the normal Bundy. That's without the entity coming up. She ran in. She had. She was going to meet her friends, her girlfriends, at a bar called the Widow, uh, the Widow McCoy's. Now there's one there today, but it's not the original location. It's all like. And she went there, and as she passed through, she looked to the right, and she saw Ted was sitting at the bar, and she said, "Hi, Ted." And he was just si sipping a. Uh, bourbon or something it wasn't a beer he was drinking hard alcohol and bundy would often jumpstart himself into hunting through the use of alcohol it would just like an elixir but help him get going and but she said when i talked to ted and again this is in one of the companion com, companion volumes she said ted was not his talkative self he said oh hi louise and they just spoke for just a second and she said i went on to my table and i and she said, we were talking, me and my girlfriends. And the next time I looked over, he was gone. Well, this was about 8.30 at night. This was not too far from a place called 
the pepperoni pizza place or palace or something. And Chief Lewis Smith's daughter, Melissa, was in that pizza place uh, that night, probably got there, I don't know, close to when Louise maybe saw uh, Bundy uh, at the, at the uh, bar. And Bundy must have made his way, and there was a testimony saying that Bundy said, somebody said they saw Bundy in that same restaurant where Melissa was on the night she disappeared. Now, whether that's true, and he gave her a ride from there, offered her a ride, or if he went ahead of her and waited and attacked her, which I think that's exactly what happened, uh, even if he wasn't at the, at the pepperoni place, he spotted her. And he, the reason why he was drinking, he was, he was getting ramped up to hunt. And there was a woman, strange incident. She's out in her, she's out, uh, I guess Melissa left around 10.30. She called home, I guess, close to 10, told her sister, jo Jolene, she'd be home soon. Not that long of a walk, but you do have to go through some darkened areas and you pass by a school. Anyway, Bundy spotted her at some point, maybe 10, 30, quarter of 11, and a woman out raking her leaves very close by heard a single scream of a female, as I say in the book, pierce the night air. And it had to have been Bundy. What Bundy did was he, he was in full attack mode and she, he probably jumped out from behind a parked car. He probably pulled ahead of her. And as she walked by, she saw him running towards her from a very short distance with a crowbar and only had time to let out that one scream. Well, seeing Bundy at that time, uh, you know, she didn't put any connection to any of this. But later when it came out, about the disappearance of Melissa Smith. And of course the body was found long before they knew it was Bundy. Once all of this came out, she said, my God, that is, that's the same night I met my girlfriend. And so, you know, it's just an astounding thing. So, you know, this, this Bundy case is like pieces of the puzzle to things. And there's a lot, a tremendous, tremendous amount of information we know about him but sometimes these other little pieces come into focus and i know a guy who's writing a book on bundy now who had a similar experience and a little piece of the puzzle has come into focus on something that occurred on the same night that he killed brenda ball and of course that'll come out in his book but the thing with it is it's cool when these things happen you know why it's great it's because we are forever getting the information out there for researchers and others who just want to read about the case, about something that would otherwise be lost to history. Well, yeah, you know, when, when you talk about this woman who, you know, you know, saw him at the bar and, you know, they talked uh -huh. casually. The one thing I really recall is how engaging he was to talk to. He, when I would talk to him, yeah. that. Um, when he'd come to pick up sure. Josh sometimes at my house, we'd sit and talk. 
And that's, I, I wanted to go to law school because Ted and I had talked about it. It was something that I thought, well, you know, after my kids were raised, you know, I, I want to know what law school's like. And we talk about it. And he listened. He was a wonderful listener. And he would give you really sure. good, he, he'd talk to you and he'd answer your questions. Very intelligent. And, and he was so handsome mm -hmm. and he was so engaging. So when yep. these women, like when you talk about, you know, uh, Melissa and stuff, he, you think, why would they go with somebody like this? He had something very endearing yeah. about him, very engaging. He was handsome. And, yeah. and, and I know in, in the seventies and as ludicrous as it sounds, um, I remember, you know, uh -huh. growing up and, and we always thought as a stranger, they look like a stranger. A killer would look like a killer, you know, and you got to watch out for people that that's don't look like that's how that's how we we're raised. Right. And, and so when they're kind and, right. and, and they're engaging like this, you would never expect it. So it would be easy to lure somebody if, you know, because he had that ability. And I do believe he also got uh, badges from pawn shops. And he used that uh, here in Utah. Oh, hey, sure. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So he, he looked credible well, he all the way around. Yeah. Well, well, you know, when George Ann Hawkins, George Ann Hawkins in, in Washington State, uh, Bundy got her on June 11th, uh, like around 1230 or so, uh, coming up the alley and strolling on crutches and and she she was going back to her. She had been with a friend. She sent the friend on ahead about you know 150 feet, 100 feet to her uh, sorority house. Said I'm going to be there soon. We're just going to go upstairs at this uh, fraternity house and see my my boyfriend for a few minutes. Well, Bundy caught her and asked her to help him. He was struggling on crutches with a briefcase. He had a split in his pants and a leg cast on up to the knee, and of course. George Ann Hawkins was so aware that there was a guy out there snatching women, but when he when she saw Bundy, obviously crippled, which he wasn't, and struggling on crutches, holding a briefcase, of course she could offer help. And that's and Bundy told Bill Hagmar, the FBI guy, which I interviewed Bill twice. He's really nice. He said I he told Hagmar I would play on the kindness of how these women were brought up, okay? So that if I was hurting and something, they would be willing to help. Well, and, not, only that, not only that though, Kevin, he, yes. he, he got baptized, didn't he, in Utah? So he would be accepted? Uh, well, you know, he did run to the Mormon church and, 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 and tried to, uh, like insulate himself with them yeah. because such pressure was on him with the police and that's where larry anderson comes in and and uh uh john um oh uh, what's his name i'm sorry i forgot his last name uh john homer and okay and carol bartholomew comes in for example larry anderson told me things uh larry was good friends with bundy and larry when bundy was put to death one of the national tabloids contacted him and offered him a lot of money to tell everything that he knew about Bundy, his dealings with him. He refused. I contacted Larry uh, because I had worked with Carol Bartholomew on my second book, The Trail of Ted Bundy, uh, digging up the untoward stories. I mean, 
the book wasn't finished. She gave me Larry's name, contact him first. So Larry worked with me, didn't ask for a penny, which I wouldn't have paid. I don't do that. But he told me all about Ted and some really phenomenal stories came out of what happened with him and Ted. And so, you, I mean, this Bundy knew how to work people. One thing Larry told me, this is why I'm bringing this up. Larry said that very often they would be in a group of people in the church, tall talking. Bundy was an observer of people. And he said a lot of times, even though Bundy would talk, I could see he would sit there, he would observe people, and he was listening. You talk about him being a good listener. He was listening to others. In fact, he and John Homer, and uh, I don't know which it was, if it was Larry or John, I think it was Larry, but they used to go out and double date with Mormon women in the church. And I said, how was Bundy? With those women he said perfectly fine gentlemanly just the perfect date but he was an observer of people and again thankfully carol now carol believed that she thought that picture may have saved her life i don't you know because hey look i had a connection with dead bundy and so maybe that's why he didn't murder me but really bundy was not going to murder anybody he knew he just wouldn't do that. He, he told people in Florida, uh, de detectives in Florida, I don't hurt people I know. So there were the women he wanted to date and have sex with, and there were the women that he wanted to murder. And those he usually did not want to know very well. So much so, very often he would knock them out. And just like a, a doll, he could play with them, and they wouldn't be interfering with him. Did he always knock them out with the crowbar? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I, I was so weird. I was driving down the street one day, coming home with my wife from a steakhouse, and I saw a short, and it was a, a, about 18 inches. It was like 17 and a half, 18 inches crowbar. And I said to my wife, I said, that's like the Sears model 5677 that Bundy carried. He carried a short crowbar so that he could maneuver that in a car and whack these women in the back of the head. She said, you should go back and get it. And I said, no, nah. I said, wait a minute, I think I will. I drove back around it and I got it. And it's exactly, I don't know if it's Sears, but it's old, really old. And it's uh, it's either that or a model exactly like it. And would he keep that in that little bag or what, just out? So he, 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 well, when he, when, he, when he was hunting, he kept that placed behind his, driver's seat oh, okay. and uh the woman if he was hunting and he picked somebody up and they sat in the seat he could then strike her in the head now very often he would remove the passenger seat now that's what and, i want to ask larry because um, when he when he picked up larry wasn't yeah wasn't that seat didn't you say something larry about um that something was different about his car when you got in <laughs> i just remember <laughs> something being off about it i can't I was talking to my friend Scott uh, recently, and we were talking about Bundy, and uh, he was another kid in the neighborhood, but he didn't he didn't spend much time around Ted, but he did remember getting in the car or being around the car, and he said he remembered something odd too. I don't know if it was the door handle or the seat, but that's what you told me when when Ted brought you back with the bike. No so the the bike he put in the front of the Volkswagen. Yeah. yeah, so I, he, he brought up, he, I, he didn't, he brought up, it was hard to get out. The, the handle or something was missing. You were saying it was hard to get out. Yeah, I can remember something off well, about I it. Can, 
Go ahead, Kevin. I can tell you that I can tell you that the seat, a woman that was interviewed, um, uh, I think her Margaret Mon, whose father was a Utah Supreme Court judge who actually had to recuse himself because uh, of his uh, daughter's relationship with Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy. But Margaret said that um, somebody else got this information, and then I was able to read it out of a court paper. But um, when she said, when I was in the in, sitting in the passenger seat, it would rock. He had taken it off and on so many times that it had stripped something. And she said, I literally had to hold on to the handle above their heads. Now, I don't know whether Bundy ever played with with uh, the door handle. There might have been something just naturally wrong with the car. We don't know that. There are some people out there that said that he did. I haven't ever, ever, ever found any proof for that. And in fact, the one woman who said the door handle was removed, uh, and she was able to escape Bundy, just a few weeks later, he got uh, Carol DeRange uh, in uh in, in his car, she escaped too, but the door handle was there and she got out easily. And Bundy, in fact, jumped out of the driver's seat over the passenger seat and chased her. But the bottom line is, is that 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 seat did rock. And when Jane Curtis went to Bundy's car at Central Washington State College before he got uh, Donna Rancourt, I mean, uh, Susan Rancourt, she looked in and she said, I was really troubled when I looked into his car, the passenger seat was gone. And if he knew he was going to be hunting, he might take that out, put it in his apartment, or sometime, like when he was arrested on August 16, 1975, trying to evade a police officer, the seat was, the, the front passenger seat was laying in the back, and Bundy had his, uh, murder kit up where that was and the tools of the trade of murder were spilling out of it so he said he wasn't hunting that night he absolutely was hunting or that would have been or that bag would have been zipped up or whatever and just you know placed maybe in the back seat but he was hunting and when he would take that off if he would attack somebody with a crowbar as he did with um deborah kent as he followed her out of um Viewmont High School up in Valleville, cracked her in the head. He put her in there, had to have thrown a blanket over her, and actually went back into the school and sat down for a few minutes and was seen by others. Except this time, rather than nicely dressed, Shirtail was half hanging out. He looked winded. His hair was askew. And I think the reason why he went back into the school was because he knew she was out cold and he didn't want to be... Uh, seen as leaving at the exact same time that she had walked out that door. She walked out the door on the western side. He ran around to the front, went out the front door, and ran down a sidewalk and inadvertently had lost his handcuff key on that sidewalk, advanced off, I think, into the grass or the gravel. And that was found the next day by the uh, Bountiful uh, police officers. But in any event, that's what he would do. He would lay them down there, cover them with a blanket, and uh, off he would go. So those are things that he did. But he absolutely stripped that, that seat. That, uh, and he just damaged it to where it would just rock when people were in there. 
Well, I tell you what, we could probably go on for another three or four hours, I'm sure of it. Uh, But I want to thank every one of you for being here today. I mean, this has been an amazing TED Talk, uh, as uh, we will coin that. I mean, the takeaways here, uh, Larry, obviously, you haven't been playing very many shark games, uh, you know, in your life, right? I'm sure you have not played that with your children at all it was terrible it was terrifying being pulled underwater was the worst part and and that's just kind of probably the tip of the iceberg but the fact that you were uh you you came into contact with somebody you know the polar opposite of of good i mean the complete you know pendulum swung swing to evil uh is absolutely phenomenal that the universe is on schedule and your life had a main purpose ahead of it, and here you are, uh, you know, continuing to to thrive as a, a good father. But so thank you, uh, Larry, for sure for being here, uh, and I can't say thank you enough, uh, Francine. What can I say about my my dear friend over there? Um, you know, you have brought so much joy and happiness to so many people by just the forensics work that you do in your life and the investigative work that you've uh, did. I, I do have a question. Did he influence you in any way uh, in no, your that, personal career? Uh, that's interesting. You bring that up. Um, I have thought about this a long time. I, he did. Um, I was going to go into law. In fact, I, when my kids were uh, pretty much raised, I did go to the university and my, my um, desire was to become uh, a lawyer. Uh, I, I, went through my schooling so that um, I could go into law school. Uh, however, um, I didn't because they, I was, uh, after I became a single parent, they wouldn't let me go my first year unless um, I would, I could only work 12 hours a week, which I couldn't do. But as I reflected on this and where I am today, so that's been many years, Ted Bundy comes into my life. He brings up the desire that I want to do this. And I gave that up for another reason for my children. So I, you know, could, you know, I couldn't do it. And then my whole life eventually started moving in a direction of working with law enforcement and in the criminal justice system in different areas. I have probably gone the whole circular path of the criminal justice system um, in, in every way for over 35 years. And now here I am, um, I've worked with law enforcement, all this stuff. And now here I am specifically focusing on solving cases so that I can help bring closure of some sort to law enforcement and to families, although there will never be closure. And I've reached out to Kevin on some things because it looked like during that time, it could have been a Ted Bundy when I found a skull that's been cracked with a crowbar. Kevin's, you know, given me some good insight and stuff, but it, it was pivotal. It, it was strange how it starts out there and I end up here doing this sort of thing. So I will say yes. And can I say something? Absolutely. You're going to have the final word, Kevin. In fact, if you wouldn't uh, mind adding a couple of real keen takeaways of your research on Ted that would help women empower themselves sure. uh, to look for sure. certain things. And then when you're done, um, also tell everybody about your, you know, where they can find your books. And when you're done, we have a tradition oh, sure. here 
on the interview room, we play a song called Hawaii. Uh, show us the moment yeah. when you're done, we're going to cut to Hawaii and uh, we'll end okay. the uh, the broadcast at that point. So you have the final word from. Okay. Well, I'd like to say that I, before I became a writer and I did that, uh, I wrote my first book in 19, uh, it was published in 1990, uh, December of 95. But I had been in the ministry, and I still am today. I still have my hand in it uh, in various areas, as long as being a writer. But, but I, but I, I decided in my in my thirties, in my early thirties, to join the police department and here in Louisville. And I, they were under a hiring freeze, and they took my information and they said, "Well, we'll, we'll you know, definitely call you." contact you after that hiring freeze goes away. I said, great. And uh, they didn't contact me for about six months and they were ready to get the ball rolling and I was going to come in. But in the, in the interim, I had injured my leg and um, it was going to prevent me from doing what I wanted to do because the injury injury was serious enough that it had uh, lasting issues with it. And my, my idea was it was to become a uh, patrolman for a number of years and then work my way up to detective, hopefully, uh, in homicide. So that was scratched. And so I said, I really hate to say this, but I had this injury and I can't do it. So anyway, but then, of course, after that, I started writing true crime. So I think in the end, I, uh, despite the leg, I still went the way I was supposed to go. Anyway, that's an interesting thing. Otherwise, I would have ended up maybe not writing and just being a uh, detective. Anyway, just because I felt like it would be interesting and I, I, I could be geared to that. As to the women and the takeaway with Bundy, back in the 1970s, a lot of women were hitchhiking. A lot of young women were unaware of the dangers. You don't see a lot of hitchhiking anymore out of women. Thank God that it is. Serial killers have not stopped. They have to be exceedingly more careful because of not just forensics and DNA, which I won't get into it here, but it would have changed some things of the way Bundy did things. And also for the many cameras that uh, are placed within cities and on our cell phones. And so these people wouldn't stop murdering. They would just have to be more careful. And Bundy, if he were alive today, he would not stop killing. He would merely adapt himself uh, and be taking people, what you might say, on the edges of things, uh, maybe in more secluded locations. But but women overall have seemed to, and I'll tell you something, women are big true crime readers, maybe even more in some areas than men. And so there's been a real shift. And I think women in general have to be more careful than they are. And I would say to younger women, do not take rides from people you don't know um, unless they're well known by friends that you have. Just don't be fooled always by the outward appearance and the smile and the suave way in which they speak um, because they might not be who they say they are. So women need to be careful. Women need to be careful more than men. Men need to be careful too, but 
many men who kill women, they don't really mess with men. Bundy was practically terrified of getting in confrontations with other men and always tried to avoid it. He would look to those that he could dominate, which were women, and he would play on their good side. So as long as women are aware and they, you know, there's a different character at night. You spend a lot of times out in the middle of the night. You're going to run into different characters than you do the day, uh, during the day. And, of course, the police have a term, high-risk victims and low-risk victims. And they have those terms for a reason. And if you live a low-risk life, chances are you're going to be okay. If you live a higher-risk life, you hitchhike, you're out in, at nights, you're walking alone you have a far greater chance of something happening. How about the woman that jumped into the wrong car thinking it was her Uber and the man murdered her? It's just astounding sometimes what happens in life. But just the, the big takeaway with Ted Bundy is don't believe everything you see. As far as my books are concerned, um, you, can, you can check out my books on Amazon. I think I've got 16 or 17 now. Uh, I'm working on another one, as I said about the Nazis, we'll be returning to the Bundy Journal next, and then I've got another one about World War II that I'm going to write after that. So uh, you can go there, and you can also go to Wild Duke Press, and you can go to their author drop-down and click on that, and you find my name, and it will not only show uh, a good number of my books, but I've written blogs over the years, and so they have all of those archived, and so you can tap into those as well. So that's about it for me. Thank you so much for having Hard working every day, I'm stressed out, 24-7, babe, no, no timeouts, wish we could fly away.